Hello, and welcome to another episode of Reframe Your Brain. Starting with episode 11, Danielle Kent and I are doing something different. Each week, we'll be sharing conversations with a variety of people talking about what they're reframing in this challenging and pivotal time of COVID-19. If you want to share a story about something that you're reframing, reach out to us on Instagram at Reframe Your Brain. Today, I'm here with Rhiannon Kim and Danielle Kent. Um, and I think we'll start, Rhiannon, will you just introduce yourself a little bit for our listeners? Yeah. So my name is Rhiannon, and <clears throat> if you forget how to pronounce it, it's a Fleetwood Mac song. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I know Leah and Danielle actually from back in our Pomeroy days being at the Luce Center in our pre-speech language pathologist in the field world. So I use she her pronouns and I am a racially ambiguous biracial person in Vermont. So yeah, and I live in Shelburne and I work right now in South Burlington and I also do some guest lecturing and adjunct professoring through St. Mike's and UVM and I also teach yoga at Burlington Yoga. Oh, and, and I'm working on my doctorate in educational leadership at UVM. Just so. minor detail there. Just just something small, <laughs> just small. Just and that EDD, right? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. That you have a lot happening right now. Um, so the question I like to start with is, uh, what are you reframing? What are you thinking differently about? Um, what sort of thoughts have been bouncing around your brain lately in maybe a different way than they have in the past? Um, and from your introduction, you have all these different angles um, that you could come at this topic. So I'd love to hear where you start. Yeah. Um, so I think a huge, a huge part of <clears throat> what I'm thinking about and reframing lately has been um, trying to figure out ways to blend social justice and mindfulness, and you know how does how does the field of speech language pathology fit into all of this um, complex trauma, and then thinking about our our diagnostic procedures and and protocols and even the materials that we have to to do that work so mm -hmm. trying to really dig deep into differential diagnosis um in in a way that i haven't done before can you talk a little bit more about um i think just to give a little context about this relationship that um you're looking that you maybe are hoping could develop between social justice, mindfulness, and like this speech pathology world, and maybe some of your thoughts about why that isn't there or what is there that you've seen? Yeah, I think, you know, my, my training, and, and I don't know if this was your experience too, is super clinical, like mm -hmm. really, you know, learning how to, to diagnose, do assessments, do treatments, you know, have, have all the data collection, and I think a, a piece that, that was missing um, was looking at um, 
differential diagnosis and having more of an interdisciplinary focus in the ways that we're approaching the work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, it, it still feels like there's a lot of aspects of speech and language pathology that are very clinical mm -hmm. and um, less collaborative. Mm -hmm. So part of, part of the work that I've been doing for the past five or so years has been teaching courses that actually blend mindfulness and implicit bias. And it, it's within the communication sciences department. And mm -hmm. because it meets a diversity requirement, I get a lot of other folks in there too. So business majors and mathematicians. And so that, that took some reframing for me of like, okay, <laughs> these are not <laughs> people who are like on this path of, of being in the helping professional world. So how do I, how do I tailor this so that it's reaching a more broad population? Um, so I think that part of why I got into mindfulness professionally was because I was using it personally, but also because it's such a, there's such a link between social emotional learning and mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And then with some of you were talking about citizen. Well, I don't know if you're familiar with Reverend Angel. Kiro Williams? No, no, I don't think so. I'm going to grab a book. Okay. Um, oh, I love it. Because, I mean, yeah. I can't see it, but that's um, okay. This is Radical Dharma. Yes. I talking have... race, love, and liberation. And mm -hmm. this is Buddhism, Buddhist practices, and mindfulness wrapped into social justice. And so we've been leaning a lot on on these teachings. So when you were saying, um, I have so many questions, I'm going to try to organize my thoughts. When you were saying, um, initially talking about like the clinical aspect of our training, the, the thing that comes up for me when I hear that also is a lot of a, a, a focus on more of a pathologization of what might be observed and less of an awareness of or just less of a focus on the fact that there might be this aspect to a person that is different from what we might see in many other people and that it is still an aspect of a whole person. And that that whole person is, is, is part of like, you know, we need to interact with the whole person, not just the part that we're seeing is different and potentially, you know, diagnosing as quote unquote problematic or a deficit or whatever the terminology is, depending on the setting that you're in. But um, I, I'm also really interested in the classes that you've been teaching and sort of where, like, I'm imagining that people coming to that, those classes from other you know, disciplines are also bringing similar, you know, parallel styles of instruction that they've been, you know, they've all been educated in our, maybe not all, but many of them have probably been educated in our educational system, which reinforces a lot of this sort of mindset. So I'm curious about how you've, um, and by mindset, I mean, sort of the siloing and pathologizing of specific differences. So I'm curious about how you were, went about broadening the focus of what you were wanting to bring to that and without knowing you know being a mathematician or being wherever these other students were coming from because that sounds 
like a wonderful challenge. (laughs) (laughs) I like that reframe. there, so thinking about pathologization, um, and I'll, I'll loop back um, to the courses, there's another book that I've been leaning on a lot is The, the Pedagogy of Pathologization and mm. um, looking at specifically Black girls in the school to prison nexus. So how often these, these labels or these diagnoses that people are given end up being more... Mm, time and place and personal perception rather than something that's actually true. So it's not like the DSM, there's a, a researcher who was quoted saying that if we, if we really took the DSM and we pared it down, it would be the size of a pamphlet. Mm-hmm. Right? It wouldn't be this like encyclopedia of, of things. And there's so much overlap between these. And mm-hmm. because we have these, the siloing of, you know, school psychologists do, do this aspect of it and SLPs do this aspect and, and special educators do this. We're not really, as you said earlier, you know, we're not really looking at the whole child and, and, Mm. or the student or the adult. Mm -hmm. And then we're not looking at the system surrounding them. We're not looking at the community that's surrounding them, the, you know, what else is going on other than hyper-focusing on this individual and then trying to say, okay, so is it this or is it this? It's like, Mm -hmm. well, maybe it's a blend. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of things, and maybe it isn't even something that we should diagnose as a disability. Maybe this is just something that we need to support in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, So for for the students who are like engineering, future engineers and mathematicians, which is like my brain does not work that way, um, at the, at the end of the class, um, the feedback was really positive and they, some of, some of the practices that we did, you know, mindfulness is not comfortable. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know if either of you have like a meditation practice or have had bad experiences with it. Very, like very, I would, I would say for myself, very basic experiences, but I found it beneficial when I can tie myself to it, but it does take a lot of work to get me to, to initiate the process of it, but I have found it helpful. Mm. I would say I've, um, have mass, I am working on mastering my ability to resist engaging in meditation. Um, <laughs> it really brings out a lot of, uh, resistance, which took me a long time to recognize. Um, and more in like the last year or two, I've been exploring sort of different ways of, like what meditation can look like. I think I had a really rigid idea prior to that of what it looked like and what the experience was, you know, quote unquote, supposed to be or meant to be. And like my understanding of those things has evolved in the last couple of years. So um, it's been more, it's felt more accessible and felt more like um, a place I sort of like to visit than avoid. Yeah, I, I think that um, it's uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable mm-hmm. for me for mm-hmm. a long time. You know, the the thought of sitting alone in silence with all of the noise that lives in my head 
was like, no, thank you. <laughs> I would like to avoid that at all costs. Uh-huh. Um, when I was, when I first started practicing yoga, doing Shavasana, which is like the final relax, final quote unquote relaxation, it was not relaxing for me. And I would just be like scrolling through my head to do list, maybe what I had messed up in the class, what I was going to do next. And like, mm. is this over? Is this over? So it took a long time for my nervous system mm-hmm. to to drop in where I was actually feeling restful and not effortable. Right. Um, and yeah, I totally, I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, what it was supposed to look like, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, I, I think in, in this culture and this Western Americanized culture of hyper positivity, mindfulness was used as this, like, it's just going to help you feel good. It's yeah. going to make you feel better. You're going to be a better person. And actually a lot of the practices are you're actually going to feel really uncomfortable (laughs) and you're going to like get to know your discomfort what your edges are where your pains are where some some of the stuff that's been avoided for a long time that's all going to rise to the surface yeah so it's not like this happy-go-lucky you know yay i i did some breathing for three minutes and now i feel better it's like i now i really know what's going on and that Mm -hmm. can be really hard so with some of these students who were not on that path of, you know, this is what I want to do in life. I want to, you know, support people with their pain and their trauma and be part of their healing process. Um, I took it a little slower. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I didn't launch into doing some of those, those practices early on. And um, are either of you familiar with um, school reform initiative? Mm, I don't think so. Okay. Maybe as you describe it, I have a hard time with titles and acronyms sometimes. <laughs> I always do because there are so many. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes they start to sound similar. And so, well, and there are ones that are exactly the same. And I have to like, okay, so who is saying this acronym? Because that is fitting into this. Like I have to, you know, contextualize it. Exactly. Yeah. So school reform initiative. Um, is this organization that uh, supports equity practices and they use collaborative practices. So they're really trying to ensure that there's equity of voice in professional conversations and in learning environments and in meetings. So they use what are called protocols. Mm -hmm. Um, So we, in that class, we would do a lot of like self-reflective time, a lot of small group dialogue, and then really trying to work to make sure that there was equity and parity in the class, because that is hard um, to do and, and to make sure that we were having an engaged conversation. So it wasn't me Mm -hmm. like lecturing that it was a three hour long class, which that can be really long you know, in the evenings too. So I was trying to make sure that it was the right balance of me sharing some information and then people actually doing the practices and engaging in conversation because that that's how we actually learn. We don't really learn through just absorbing, you know, what the experts say for three hours. Uh, we, we need to feel it. Yeah. Uh, and that gives them such a great experience to know what it feels like what it doesn't feel like to be able to also recognize as they're moving through life whether what they're seeing is what they think they're seeing or not so that's great is that a course you're teaching this semester or is it one you've done in the past 
Um, I thought that it would be too much to teach that <laughs> right now. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm nearing the end of my first year of the doctorate program. Okay. So I think I will be teaching it in spring of next year. 2021. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And then this summer, actually through St. Mike's, I'm teaching an online course that, that will be similar, um, but for in-service teachers and professionals who are currently in the field. I get that. I was really interested in that area of your reframing as you've kind of looked at these courses you're going to be teaching. How, how have you been shifting how you plan to teach or have you shifted that thinking at all? Because I think I know for, in our profession, we've shifted a lot of what we're doing in therapy, but as you know, a clinical professor, what type of reframing have you been doing in that area? like a ton, <laughs> like a ton, a ton, you know, I, I, a lot of the professional learning that I've been doing has been in places and spaces where they're, they're doing collaborative practices, they're embedding mindfulness, they're, you know, centering social justice and, you know, deep identity work. So that, that's a huge part in, in my teaching now that wasn't really necessarily modeled for me when I was an undergrad um, or in graduate school. So, you know, it was, a, it was a learning curve to to figure out how to how to be in those spaces as a participant and then how to bring those practices into that learning environment. Wow. Danielle, did you want, was there more that you wanted to ask? I was, I was curious for this summer, have you done any additional reframing in light of this pandemic for how you'll carry out any courses that you teach? Yeah, I think that my part, part of my pacing in these classes is um, pretty slow. <laughs> like it's, it's, and somebody described my teaching i like co-facilitated a workshop with somebody and they were like oh you're like an improv musician <laughs> like, uh -huh. you're like rolling with it you're you're taking in what's coming at you and then you're kind of like shifting and maneuvering so and it does feel like that sometimes of you know when when we're actually in a moment when i'm actually in a moment and feel like reading the energy in the room and then making those shifts um that feels a lot better than trying to follow my exact script and trying to get through what I had planned for the three hours and like, okay, you know, the inner, people are tired, they're yawning. So what do we need to do differently to help people be where they mm -hmm. can be in a place where they can learn? Do I need to end early? Do I need to add more movement breaks? Do I need to like, even online, even virtually, you know, mm -hmm. I think there, there can be this sense of pressure, like to be on and be on the camera and make sure that you're, you're packing everything in but that's not really sustainable. Like that hasn't been sustainable before and it's definitely not now given the, like the massive levels of stress that people are, are under. Yeah. You know, while you were talking, I was thinking about this idea of sustainability and in our profession, I, Danielle and I have talked a lot about this, how like it's not something that's really, at least in our experience, really talked about, you know, how to create like professional practices that incorporate some of what you're talking about to be able to maintain and sustain, you know, working with families, working in educational systems, I think both of which are more and more like the, the challenges 
of the educational system and the challenges that families are coming to school with are more and more intense, more, or maybe just more and more visible also, but that we are in a role of engaging with those experiences, I think is not something that is very extensively addressed and how to be prepared for that as much as you could be and how maybe also to respond to like our own personal needs that come out of those situations and the needs of the people that we're working with or the, um, you know, like our coworkers or the families that we're working with. Um, and so I was thinking a little bit about what your experiences have been in collaborating with other educators or speech pathologists and how these ideas have been received. Um, yeah. <laughs> sometimes sometimes well and sometimes uh not so well. You know, I think um talking about like saying saying white supremacy or saying saying even racial identity or gender identity. Yeah. Uh, those because we are in a culture that has avoided these conversations for so long, it is massively uncomfortable for people to even begin to think about having those conversations. Yeah. And the, the way that I, I kind of view special education sometimes is like this, this factory like line, right? So um, what's the word? Like, like assembly? Or? Like an assembly line, right? So it's like, all right, so we're going to take this, this kid and we're going to do these things because this is what we always do. And then we're just going to keep moving them through this process. And it's going to take a, a concerted effort from a lot of people to stop that assembly mm. line and mm -hmm. and to to shift the way that we're doing things because we have to and i like what you were saying Leah, is is so true that we're seeing more of of what's going on and it and it feels more intense and we're i think we we're more aware of some of these things too. Like we have the language to wrap around some of these experiences, yeah. which is empowering and exhausting, right? It's like, oh, you know, I knew that thing was there, but I didn't right. have words for it. There's now an interesting relationship for me that comes up with that. Like when I am able to really identify and describe something I think is happening, there's also this sense of obligation or responsibility, depending on what's happening to like, uh, to be involved or to like share that observation um, and there's often not a place for that to be received. Uh, you know, I've found myself and I think some of the like team, um, dynamic conversations that Danielle and I have had about working with teams, like we've encountered that where we're seeing that there's this struggle happening and there's someone who will bring it up and talk about it, but then it, it sort of ends there. You know, the receiving end can't manage what's being presented. I don't know, Danielle, do you feel like that's consistent with some of the things that like we've reflected on? Yeah. yeah. And I was just looking, I'm reading the book, maybe you should talk to someone and I don't know what, I'm like almost done with it. Uh -huh. Rhiannon, have you heard of it or have you no. read it? It's really good. But it talks a lot about, it's specific to the therapy world that they get close enough to like, you know, push at sensitive spots and then, you know, back off a little bit when people are really resistant, but then just kind of keep, keep gently talking about it and bringing it up and the way you said that when people often are so abrasively resistant or just aren't in a place to be able to talk about it I think what happens and I know this isn't you but I think what happens in a lot of cases is people then back off completely and it doesn't come up again 
And so there's not a continued ability to talk about it in a really engaged and proactive way that's, that's, that's not so heated and, and um, immediately resistant. Yeah. So I'm, right now I'm listening to Brene Brown's podcast. Um, mm -hmm. Brene, I mean, we need, we need her, <laughs> you know, always, but she's so good. She's so good. So good. And so one of the, one of the people was talking about loneliness and yeah. this, that loneliness can sometimes come from a, from feeling like people aren't seeing you and appreciating you. Mm -hmm. And have you read any bell hooks? Mm -mm. Bell Hooks is a black woman feminist author. Highly recommend um, all of her her works. Uh, the two that I started with are The Will to Change, which is looking at patriarchy, and then the second one is um, All About Love, which mm -hmm. is really powerful. In this other book that I'm reading by her, um, she talks about this this deep sense of isolation and loneliness that comes from feeling different. Right. And so when you are that one person in the room who is, you know, saying like, Oh, could we do this differently? Could we talk about this in a different way? Could we approach this and examine this in a, a different way? And then being met with defensiveness or resistance or hostility or even like silence can mm. be really, really tough too. Yeah. That it takes a toll on our, our, entire being right so emotionally psychologically physically spiritually it can be really exhausting yeah. and so i think burnout happens pretty quickly when you are the one person in the room trying to do things just a little differently and you're met with all those things that is an experience i can relate to <laughs> Um, and it and yeah. it makes sense for why. I mean, we often have these discussions, and sometimes we'll Leah and I will meet up with team members who do share this, some similar opinions. But then they'll say, "But nobody else feels this way." You know, I'm the only one, or um, which it, may or may not be true. You know, they right. may, that that there's a lot of assumption that gets made because there's a lot of fear about initiating conversation and what might happen. Um, and it is really interesting, like like you were just saying, Danielle. We'll have these conversations with different people and realize that there are many people thinking the same thing or, um, or, or, or not, but, <laughs> but in those cases where they are, it's always really tricky to figure out how to help them see that they are thinking the same thing because they are so convinced that they're not. And I also think that we, think you, so, so we were talking about mindfulness earlier as being, mm -hmm. you know, pitched as this like, ooh, it's your, your gateway to happiness and everything will be perfect. And it's detouring, it's avoiding discomfort. Right. So talking about these things can be really uncomfortable and people aren't used to sitting in discomfort. So part of the practices that I teach when I'm teaching mindfulness is learning how to name the emotions, how to sit in that discomfort, how to build a capacity to hold space for our own discomfort and other people's. Mm. And one of the classes that I'm taking right now is um, called collaborative consultation, which is like so delightful. Um, I needed <laughs> something soul nourishing for this semester. And in it, we're talking about conflict and how conflict can be so generative if yeah. we do it well, right? And if we do it poorly, which I think we, we, are, we do that a lot, if we're doing it in a way that is actually creating more division or if we're 
thinking about call out culture or cancel culture, you know, if you if you make a misstep that the the price of that is that you're going to be ostracized, you're going to be shamed, you're mm-hmm. going to be blamed maybe publicly, that people are not really going to take a risk. So how do we create these spaces in Brene books, Brene Brown's book, Dare to, Dare to Lead, she mm-hmm. cites um, a researcher, maybe from Google or Harvard, I don't know, one mm-hmm. of the one of the one of the big places talking about psychological safety yeah, and how important it is to be in a space where you can speak up and you, you aren't afraid of having those repercussions and that it doesn't mean that you're avoiding those conversations. It means that it's safe enough that you are still going to be accepted and loved and appreciated and that those conversations might actually be generative instead of dehumanizing. Yeah. So you said that you've had sort of mixed responses when you've been working with, you know, in, in an educational setting. Um, could you share a little bit about some of the, the positive or hopeful sort of optimistic uh, experiences that you've had that? Yeah. So thinking about reframing, right? Uh-huh. So, mm-hmm. so when I sit on a team and they hear title speech language pathologist, I think that I get put into a box. Right. And so when I start talking about things that are outside of the box of SLP, that that creates some sort of cognitive distortion for folks. And they're like, mm-hmm. wait a second, like, why are you talking about this? Or, you know, that right. stay in your lane. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> which my partner was like, okay, wait, stay in your lane. But aren't you all like in the same bus? <laughs> are you all working together? And I was like, yes, that that's the hope. I really like that image, that visual of like, we're, you know, we're not in separate vehicles. We're all riding together. <laughs> yes, be true. Um, so, so the framing. So when I have actually been invited in to do equity work or engage in these conversations, there are, I think people are so wanting to have the language to, mm-hmm. and I think people are afraid of making mistakes. Yeah you know, of saying the wrong thing, of um, being ostracized, of being humiliated in public. So mm-hmm. when I go in with, hey, this is what I'm doing, like this is the frame, then people are more receptive to it. But I think it takes people a bit, like by surprise, you know, it right. shocks them a little bit. So I think in Vermont and in, in a lot of our schools, people are wanting to have these conversations and um, trying to move in that direction and they don't always know how. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. You know, I was mentioning to you both before we started recording that I was listening to um, a podcast with Leila Saad this morning, who I just think she's amazing. Uh, and in that conversation, um, with the people that she was interviewing, they were talking about this idea. I'm just looking at, I wrote it down. It's right next to me. Um, Collective or community care, you know, and they were really talking about it in a, I think it, the conversation was about like more than what was much bigger than what we're talking about, but included pieces of what we're talking about. And this idea of care being partially create, you know, a willingness to be a part of a space that like what you're describing where there's enough um trust that the people who are present are willing and accepting of mistakes that may be made and that it's a space to make mistakes in and to learn and to grow um 
And I just, that idea has, I only heard that term this morning. So it's not like it's stuck with me for a long time, but it really has stuck with me <laughs> and it really resonated um, as something that I feel is missing in a lot of the um, work settings that I've experienced over the last five or so years. Um, and so it's really, I think, um, reassuring or, you know, sort of in bring some, some, I, I don't like the word hope necessarily, but it, the fact that what you're highlighting is that people are aware of this and they're wanting that to change feels like a shift that wasn't necessarily part of the conversation five years ago in the schools that we're probably familiar with. Um, and I wonder if you have felt like that is the case or is it just awareness that our awareness of this is a little different? So it feels like it's more present, more of a shift. Um, yeah. I mean, if we look at government, right? Yeah. Federal government. Um, yes. I think that for, for some people, this was a huge awakening. Mm -hmm. of, oh, this is what people have been talking about for a long time. And now it's like very present and yes. there's no avoiding it. And so people, I think, were, are feeling motivated by this to really think differently and do things differently than we've been doing. And, and there's the sense of urgency, mm -hmm. which is good. Yeah. Um, I also see you know, people have been wanting to do mindfulness, I think for a similar reason, you know, like we, we want to do this better. We want to support emotional health and well-being, and, and, you know, in some places we're doing it well, in some places, you know, we're kind of not. And, and that's true with everything that we do. Right. So, so I think about our training as speech language pathologists, right. Listening and speaking are a mm -hmm. huge piece of that. And then our interpersonal skills. So it makes total sense to me that like all of us, are like latching onto this idea of like, okay, so how do we have psychologically safe spaces? How do we have these conversations better? How do we support people in engaging instead of walking away or, you know, engaging in, in hostility? Right. So are you, are you using um, restorative practices in any of your places or spaces? Mm, I would say no. Yeah. And I'm part of that could just be that the places that I'm a part of, I may, I may not be fully aware of the practices that are in place since I am more of a consultant for a lot of those places, but this, the spaces that I'm in more of the time, I don't think that that's what they're doing, but maybe tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the two books that I will, suggest and I've, i think i've suggested you know a solid semester's worth of reading yes <laughs> it's wonderful you know that we've written all these down and we're both Leah like loves she just ordered how many books off of it? like yeah bear local bookstore she was like hit me up these are all my books yeah yeah me and phoenix books the same thing <laughs> <laughs> so this one is the little book of racial healing Coming to, and these are the the little book of um, restorative practices and restorative justice. They're really affordable. I think they're like four ninety nine. Mm -hmm. um, so this is written by a white man and a black woman, and talking about how to have these conversations, um, specifically 
looking at American history, right? Yeah. And then how do we do it? How do we have conversations that are responsible and healing, centering mm -hmm. healing? And then the other one is um, race and restorative justice. So mm -hmm. restorative practices and the restorative justice movement. Uh, I think it's Fania E. Davis. This is Angela Davis's sister mm -hmm. um, who wrote this book. So she talks about how the restorative justice movement, it's based on indigenous practices, like mm -hmm. the, the, a resurgence and uh, an invitation to move back toward those roots. And some of those practices were not actually centering racial healing or racial justice. It was just talking about, you know, justice. Right. So trying to think about Black Lives Matter in, in a completely different way and in a restorative healing way that's right. generative and it's not recreating those same cycles of harm, which are so easy to do because they're so ingrained. They're so, right. so patterned to, to see those as being the way. Or to not see them at all and fall into them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm so excited about all of these books that you've told us about. <laughs> it's interesting to me because, you know, there are pieces of what you've been talking about that I know about from different uh, parts of my life. But um, to really hear someone who's a speech pathologist pull all of these sort of strands together and talk about why and how that's actually really relevant to our role and our skill set. And um, I have not heard that before. So even though it's something that makes so much sense and I think is, um, is probably, and many people are thinking along those lines, it's really, it's really encouraging to hear you synthesize it all together for us. Thank um, you. Yeah. It's been a journey. It's been a slog. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds really meaningful to you and probably it sounds like also maybe addressing some of your own sort of healing and growing and exploration. Definitely. I, you know, I think about the, the idea too, this um, Parker Palmer's work, he talks about the undivided self, right? So, mm -hmm. so in our work worlds and in this culture, we're told, okay, so your professional world is over here and then your personal world is over there and you have to kind of split your personality. Mm -hmm. And we do this to kids too. I can't remember um, who said that. I think it was a, a speaker at the school reform initiative. She was talking about how we, especially for students of color, and especially black students, we are asking them to, to divide themselves and to have multiple personalities. Like, okay, yeah. in this setting you act this way, in this setting you act this way, and how damaging that is to a sense of self. Yeah. So instead of having this be, and it, it's kind of like you were talking about earlier too, of like we have these silos, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we need to unsilo inside ourselves, and then we need to unsilo the world that we're living in too, because we it's collective, right? We need right. everybody to be doing this work together, not the SLPs do that work, you know, go into your office and fix that. And then this person, the guidance counselor will do that. It's like, no, 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 no. We're actually doing a lot of the same kind of work. Mm -hmm. So how do we work together so that it's actually sustainable, right? So it's not yeah. burning the guidance counselor out and the SLP out that they're coming together and supporting a broader right. um, range of people, teachers, families, the community, students, instead of one person trying to work on one mm -hmm. thing. And as a learner, I mean, imagine 
what the difference would feel like to have, you know, sort of be peppered from different angles with sort of similar, but maybe not identical messages as opposed to like a more coordinated, um, like enveloping, you know, of we all are sort of supporting and, and giving you the same information and the same message and seeing that present in all these different settings rather than asking the learner to adjust to the way that, you know, the way we do it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I struggled with that in school. I remember, mm -hmm. like, I mean, like K through graduate school. Mm -hmm. and, and I would say even now it's like, okay, this class is this class. And it, it, my mind prefers having those things be woven together so that I can see how they intersect and how they interconnect. And so it was like, okay, so why do we have language arts here where I have writing assignments, but then I'm learning how to write in writing? It's like, yeah. wouldn't it make sense to like, together, together? <laughs> um, you know, but then I would have to like, and then the level of executive functioning that has to go on to navigate all those things instead of having more cohesion, mm -hmm. it's exhausting. And then for people who are developing those skills or who are struggling to develop those skills, it's like, we are asking way too much. Yeah. Of, these minds of our own minds too. To the, do that. I mean, and that's in a, a, an ideal situation, like throw some extra layers of stress on top of that. And it's, you know, it's not surprising that some of the challenges we see exist because exactly like how much our brains can only do so much, you know, and they need to be connected to the rest of us to really function well. And yeah. Mm, I feel like we could talk about that for a long time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the question that I want to wrap up with, and you've, you've talked a little bit about this, but to, to be more specific, I guess, where do you see sort of the, the possibilities? You know, where do you see some, the, the, where do you hope that um, people might focus their energy or whatever you you are thinking like i think the idea of possibility is the one that i'm really interested in generative creative energy yeah so i think that there this moment is really inviting us to slow down and mm. to to think about what is important and what is necessary and that this is an opportunity to do things differently. I hear people call this the new normal. I don't want this to be the new normal. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want this to be, this is this moment right now and it is stressful and it is overwhelming mm -hmm. and it is not normal and that's okay. Um, and then after, like, as we start to move back into schools, I hope that we have more opportunities to use restorative practices, to engage in these conversations, to shift into collaborative practice, to, to name our stress, to, to I don't love this term, but normalize, to normalize um, talking about when things are feeling overwhelming and to lean on each other and to actually build a sustainable community of care. Like, yeah that podcast was talking about because we can right like that that is those are our roots we are we are here to be connected to other people and we need to unlearn Brene Brown talked about this in her podcast she was like we need to unlearn a bunch of crap yeah and 
create new learning pathways. So I think this is an opportunity to really do that, to pull in some nourishment from, you know, whatever practices, whatever practices feel really soothing to you. And it, it might not be mindfulness, it might not be meditation, but what is it that, that is nourishing for you? And then how can we create these communities that are actually nourishing for ourselves and for each other? Wow. I just thank you so much for <laughs> sharing, you know, this just, I feel like this is just the tip of the iceberg of all the, like, I can feel the energy you have behind these ideas. And as we're talking and that there's so much that, you know, insight and wisdom that you're sharing about how these things can support us. And, you know, as a culture and individually and as a profession and that, um, I just appreciate you sharing, sharing what you did with us. So thank you so much for that. Rhiannon, if people want to know more about you or the work you're doing, is there any good contact information for you? Like I know you do yoga, but I don't know if that's going on right now. Yeah. Is there any way? Yeah, people I am could... doing virtual yoga. Um, awesome. On, on Sunday mornings. Uh, so Burlington Yoga's website has that. Um, okay. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Those two are, are, fairly good ways to see some of <laughs> what I'm thinking about and see some of the yeah. other people that I'm inspired by and in mm -hmm. work I'm referencing. At some point I will have a website. So uh, that's in the works.